Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I bring you a Welcome to the History of Ireland. Today, I want to talk about the Army Emergency Power Resolution. A resolution that allowed the Irish Free State to crack down on the anti-treaty IRA. But before I do, first, let's look at where the anti-treaty IRA were sitting at this point in the Civil War, around September and October of 1922. Now, in theory, Eamon de Valera was the leader of the organisation, as he was President of the Republic that these soldiers argued they were fighting for. But in reality, Dev had virtually no control over the anti-treaty IRA. Instead, he spent the period, as Charles Townsend puts it, quote, shepherded through the countryside from a regular unit to a regular unit, the awkward symbol of a lost state. Writing to one friend, Dev put the situation like this. The Republicans had to choose between a heartbreaking surrender of what they have repeatedly proved was dearer to them than life, and the repudiation of what they recognise to be the basis of all order in government and the keystone of democracy. It's interesting the language he uses here. He talks about the Republicans, almost othering them, separating them from himself. Liam Lynch, the leader of the anti-treaty IRA, didn't seem to be worried about this choice. For him, it would always be the Republic, regardless of what the majority thought. As he put it, views and opinions of political people are not to be too seriously considered. Our aim and our course are now clearly defined and cut and dried. This didn't stop some of the anti-treaty IRA trying to act in a way that wasn't purely militaristic, however. Other IRA leaders, like Liam Mellows and Ernie O'Malley, argued that they needed a clear idea of what the Republic actually was. They needed an alternative government to the Irish Provisional Government, similar to how the Second Dáil had formed a second functioning government as an alternative to British rule. As Mellows put it, an object, a target, must be presented to the enemy to hit at. Otherwise, it becomes a fight apparently between individuals. He also argued that a social program be put forward to demonstrate what the Republicans believed in. Mellow's version of this was, quote, a pretty full-blooded socialist document 
advocating nationalization of banks and industry. O'Malley, writing from prison, also pushed Lynch, writing, We consider it imperative that some sort of a government, whether a provisional or republican government, or a military one, should be inaugurated at once. So Dev, O'Malley, Mellows and many others tried to push Lynch into creating some form of republican government, some social manifesto or policy document or anything. They wanted to get Labour and the workers and really anyone else on side. But Lynch, well, he was having none of it, describing the Labour manifesto as gas. And despite the fact that they had no backing from Lynch, and therefore the majority of the anti-treaty military, Dev did reconvene what was left of the second doll on October 25th. But as Townsend puts it, the cabinet he formed had an air of unreality. Without Lynch's support, it didn't really matter what Dev or the political side of the anti-treaty side did. If their own army ignored them, well, it was very easy for everyone else to do the exact same thing. So the anti-treaty IRA were firmly militaristic. As Lynch put it, the decision would be to fight to a finish and accept no more compromises. Them's fighting words, if ever I've heard them. And so fighting continued all across the country. It was piecemeal guerrilla fighting, similar to what had been done against the British. And if Lynch and the majority of the anti-treaty IRA were determined to fight with no compromises, well, so were the Irish provisional government. Last episode, I mentioned Cosgrave's threat to exterminate 10,000 Republicans. He was very much backed up in this by Richard Mulcahy, new leader of the Irish Free State Army. It's often said that Mulcahy was a lot, quote, less sentimental about old comrades than Collins had been. With this in mind, on the 15th of September, Mulcahy wrote up a document with the powers he believed the army would need to quash the anti-treaty opposition. What came out of this was the Army Emergency Powers Resolution, which was put to the doll on September 27th. Now, without getting too deep into legalese, it is interesting as to why it's called a resolution, or at least I think it's interesting. Basically, under the treaty, the provisional government, as legal historian Thomas More puts it, could only pass temporary legislation that dealt with matters of administration that the British had already transferred to it. They were just meant to keep things on track until December 6th, when the Irish Free State would come into power. But, you know, a civil war has a mighty way of knocking things off track. And so something had to be done. Between April and October, 10 degrees were passed. Not laws, but decrees, covering a few different areas. But, you know, you better believe that giving the army extra powers had not really been covered in the treaty. And that kind of power was, quote, not deemed to have been transferred to the provisional government. There was also the risk that any decree might become unlawful after December 6th. And that would be the last thing that you'd want to happen when fighting a civil war. So what was the solution? 
rather than making a decree, an act, or a law, Hugh Kennedy, a lawyer for the provisional government, dubbed it a resolution. And this name change was enough to make it all honky-dory, apparently. Lawyers, eh? So, the Army Emergency Powers Resolution introduced a system of military courts empowered to serve up fines, imprisonment, hired labour and even the death penalty. It controlled the ownership of firearms and though it was meant to combat the anti-treaty IRA, it could be applied to anyone. So basically, any citizen, whether a combatant or not, could be brought before a military court and condemned without jury, much of a legal process or anything of the like. Labour, the main opposition party in the Dáil, dubbed it a blank check for the army and compared them to the military courts that were going on in Soviet Russia at the time and complained that it turned Ireland into a military dictatorship. Thomas Johnson, the Labour leader, put it like this. We are giving that army military power over every person in the country. Setting up, by vote of the Dáil, a military dictatorship. We should at least have some reasons given us and some thorough examination and disclosure of the military position throughout the country. But Cosgrave argued firmly in favour, stating, If murderous attacks take place, those who persist in those murderous attacks must learn that they have got to pay the penalty for them. Just now those people think as far as our action is concerned, up to this, it has looked as if they had the perfect liberty to attack our soldiers, to maim them, to wound them, to kill them, and to suffer no greater penalty than internment. Those people, not alone, take part in those things, but go away silently smiling and laughing at the destruction they have wrought. They must be taught that this government is not going to suffer their soldiers to be maimed and ruined, crippled and killed, without at least bringing those responsible for such destruction before a tribunal that will deal out justice to those people. As ever, at this point, Cosgrave really wasn't messing around. And in the end, the resolution was passed, 41 votes to 18. Towards the end of the year, the legality of the resolution was brought before the courts. Moore writes that, quote, Lord Chief Justice Maloney openly admitted that the Irish National Army had no basis in statute or any other legal instrument. Basically, without the Irish Free State coming into being December 6th, well, what was this army doing? Who was in legal control of it? But the Chief Justice also pointed out that, quote, when the government of a country is attacked, it has, apart from any statutory or other provisions, an inherent right to organise a force and to take such other steps as it may deem necessary to quell the insurrection. Again, translating that a little bit, he's just saying, if someone attacks a country, they have the right to set up an army and give that army powers to defend themselves. And I can see his point. So that's what the Irish Provisional Government and the Irish Free State Army did. Over the next two years, the resolution allowed them to 
to intern 11,000 people and execute 81. Some argue that the first person to be killed under this legislation was John Lawler, a 22-year-old anti-treaty IRA man from Ballyhigh in County Kerry. Though there's no record of Lawler taking part in the War of Independence, his older brother, David, was a member of a Kerry flying column. And John was probably involved, but played a smaller role in the war, considering his age. Regardless, he was definitely involved in the anti-treaty IRA, and had been fighting throughout Ballyhigh in October. In this period, Ballyhigh had seen quite a little bit of action, and the Irish Free State had even brought down an 18-pounder gun, nicknamed the Rose of Tralee. In the last week of October, Lawler was caught by the Free State Army. As the Cork Examiner wrote, rounding up operations were carried out on an extensive scale in Ballyhigh, North Kerry, on Monday and Tuesday. During the operation, one irregular was killed and three arrested. A Ford motor car and two shotguns were captured. But the way the paper reports it suggests that Lawler was killed in battle. And that's not really what happened. In his excellent article on Lawler, Brian McMahon quotes a local Kerry woman, Dorothy McCardle, who wrote about that night. She had this to say. On the night of 30th October, a division of the Free State troops surrounded Ballyhigh. John had good luck and bad luck on that night. Having helped to extricate two companies of volunteers, he went with a couple of comrades to secure arms. They were captured, they disarmed their guards and dashed away over the fields with the rifle in triumph. They headed by mistake into an enemy post and were seen and fired on. The others escaped, but John fell wounded and was taken prisoner. They condemned him to death that night and killed him in the early morning. They left his body in the street of Ballyhigh outside the church gate. Now it should be said that neither the Dáil nor the Free State Army Command authorised the execution. But it was the first to take place after the army resolution was passed, making it arguably perfectly legal. The man who ordered the execution was Michael Hogan, a 23-year-old Free State soldier. Think about that. A 22-year-old, injured, and a prisoner, was shot dead on the orders of a 23-year-old, who, a year previous, had been fighting on the same side. This is what people say when they talk about the horrors of the Irish Civil War. And things would only get worse. Now, I'll be taking a break over Christmas to enjoy, well, the first Christmas I've had at home in Ireland in over four years now, but I'll be back in the new year, raring to go, where I'll be going back over 1922 and looking at what was happening from a northern perspective. See you in the new year. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes 
or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. It's always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. The History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dolan, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy. Mm-hmm.